We are in Acts chapter uh, 12 this morning. And if you would, would you open uh, a Bible uh, there or just listen very attentively? Um, Let's pray. Gracious uh, Lord, thank you for uh, moving uh, Dr. Luke uh, to record this for us. We thank you that uh, your spirit uh, guided him in the writing of this. We thank you that he researched uh, this uh, carefully and and closely. And as we uh, read these uh, accounts this morning, we thank you uh, that uh, they are full of uh, eyewitness uh, details. Lord, give us understanding, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please, if you would, stand. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he'd seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, 
There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please take your seats. Well, he was a man of a few words. As a boy growing up in Minnesota, he was fascinated by the warm insides of the television. The tubes, the resistors, the condensers, the potentiometers, they were like a great adventure beckoning him. And he discovered the music of the ether, as it was called then, on the shortwave radio where he uh, could uh, converse uh, with people all around uh, the world. As a man, he learned that his love of electronics could be joined to his Christian faith by providing a crucial service to missionaries working in remote locations. The radio linked them to the civilized world, made air travel possible, medical help, and supplies. Now, Bible translators who lived and worked in the jungle needed all of those things. And Cameron Townsend, who founded Wycliffe Bible Translators, uh, was, well, very forward-thinking in establishing the jungle aviation and radio uh, service for which uh, Ray would work for 20 years until that fateful day when he was taken captive by uh, the FARC, guerrillas in Colombia, South America. And for over 800 days, he was held captive by them. They knew he was an American, and all Americans are rich. They're millionaires, all of them. And they needed money for their army, and so they held him uh, for ransom. During those months, urgent pleas went around the world for prayer. And people prayed all over the world. I happened to have a front row, row seat because at that time I was Ray and Doris Rising's pastor. Doris returned to her home uh, from Columbia and worshiped in the small church that I served. How would you feel if you were Ray or Doris? And you had two school-age sons. Well, as time passed, I wondered how it would all end. It was the policy of Wycliffe Bible translators not to pay ransom. 
And word came very infrequently from Ray or the gorillas about his conditions. And I really wondered whether he would just one day disappear and we would never hear of him again. There'd be no uh, closure. I wondered how long this could go on before the candle of hope would grow dim and perhaps be extinguished. This story obviously has parallels to this text. And having lived that story, it's made me enter this story maybe in a way otherwise I wouldn't have. I can really identify with the church uh, praying for Peter's uh, release. But this isn't just Peter's story, my story. It's our uh, story. And God wants to speak to us. It's actually three stories here. There's Peter's story, Herod's story, and Jesus' story. And at the uh, end, we'll see the one certain thing in an uncertain world. Now, the year is A.D. 44. It's been 14 years since Pentecost. And the King Herod here is King Herod Agrippa I, as historians uh, call him. He rules only for four uh, years over the Roman province of Judah. And uh, he was raised as one of the uh, emperor's own uh, sons. Uh, He aligned himself with the most conservative sect of Judaism, the Pharisees, and he was an astute politician. And he wanted to gain political capital with his subjects, and so he arrested James and a number of other Christians. He puts James to death. Now, Peter and James, along with the other apostles, had been arrested uh, before, but they'd always been released. And undoubtedly, we really have no reason to think the church didn't pray for James. Um, You know, you shouldn't always read the fact that something isn't mentioned in the Bible with the assumption that these silences mean it didn't happen. It's just not of special interest at this point. You see, God had always come through for the church. And one thing that's clear from the book of Acts, the early church is a praying church. With James' arrest, the unbelievable takes place. Herod puts him to death. Hearts stop beating. Some wept and others grow very quiet. Deep questions are forming in people's hearts and minds. Questions that can't just simply be batted away as if there's no substance to them. Why didn't God act? Why did he allow this? Now, If you know the Gospels, you know, in fact, that Jesus had said something like this might happen. Uh, The sons of Zebedee, John and James, this James, uh, got their mother to go to Jesus on one occasion and say, you know, could you make a promise to me right now that my sons will have the best seats, right, your left and right hand in your coming kingdom? And he begins to query about their readiness for those uh, positions. And in figurative language, he tells them that they too will drink his cup and be baptized with the same baptism he is, which is a figurative way of speaking of his death. So 
Perhaps James remembered these verses. I don't know. The church may not have been thinking about these verses. But even knowing that and experiencing are really different. The church is experiencing its vulnerability before the power of the state. And I imagine that the emotions they felt are not like, unlike the people of Ukraine that we're seeing interviewed coming out of Poland who didn't really expect Russia to invade. Now James' execution greatly pleased many Jews, and so Herod decided to arrest another apostle, Peter. It was the Passover feast, one of the three great national religious celebrations. Uh, our you know, Easter is derived uh, from it. It's the Jewish Easter. It's the Jewish celebration, the great deliverance out of Egypt. And Luke includes some details here. There are four squads of soldiers, 16 Roman soldiers all together, doing shift work, uh, ensuring around the clock there will uh, be no rescue, escape is utterly impossible, and the church earnestly prays. The night before Herod will act, before most likely Peter will be executed and not a show trial that will end in his execution, God acts supernaturally. He sends an angel in uh, to the very cell where Peter is kept. The cell is just filled with light. And Peter doesn't notice at all. He doesn't stir. And so the angel strikes him <laughs> to wake him up. <laughs> and the chains, his chains fall uh, off. Uh, he gets dressed. Locked doors are open. They walk past uh, guards. Apparently all these guards are very deeply asleep. Uh, the outer gate opens and Peter finds himself on the street. And then he realizes, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He heads off to the home of John Mark. That's uh, the Mark who uh, was, uh, used Peter to write his gospel. It's that John uh, Mark. And uh, it's his mom's house. Apparently they're uh, well uh, to do. And the church is gathered there praying. And a servant girl whose name in English means Rose uh, uh, came to the door having heard the knocking. She, she recognizes Peter's voice. And she's so excited. She runs back to the prayer meeting to tell everybody Peter's outside. She forgets to open the door. And... Uh, they respond coldly, uh, with disbelief. You're out of your mind. It's just his angel. But Peter persists in knocking, and whether it's because Rose is so insistent, or they become curious and somebody hears the knocking uh, too, eventually Peter's let in, and he explains uh, what's happened to him. They're just amazed. 
Now, this brings a smile uh, to my face, and some of you smiled a little bit. This is just, well, it's comic, uh, really. You know, Peter needs to be hit to be woken up. Um, uh, Rhoda doesn't let Peter in. And then there's the church at prayer. And I feel better about myself reading this uh, story because the early Christians aren't really as I sometimes imagine them. They're really more like me uh, than not. They have the same struggles. They fight the same battles I do. They, too, experience the mystery of God's uh, involvement in the world and don't know the answer as to why James was taken and why Peter's delivered. And we too pray for people who are in situations that seem impossible and hopeless. And so I actually identify with both Peter and Rhoda because I knock on people's doors sometimes when I preach or in a conversation, almost always in counseling. And I tell people God loves them. He's gone to extreme lengths uh, to rescue them. The God the Father loves them in the way the best parents love their children, even better than that. And he's able to change their lives from the inside out uh, uh, to uh, correct difficult dynamics in relationships, to provide for them, uh, to even change their circumstances, that he's involved, he's near, and he answers uh, prayer, that he's near to those who are lowly and brokenhearted and crushed by suffering. And they look at me like I'm crazy, as if they'd seen my picture on the cover of the National Enquirer or in some uh, viral video joke. You're out of your mind. That is unbelief talking. That's just what that is. You see, those who are praying for Peter's release aren't praying uh, with expectancy. They don't actually believe that Peter could be outside, that God would have answered uh, their prayer. You see, they're living with what might be described as a practical deism. It's God created the world and he wound up this great uh, clock and it just runs down and rarely, very rarely, does God ever touch the clock. And they weren't expecting God to insert himself in this situation. Uh, Of course, he might but he mostly just lets things run the course. And that's really where the church is exposed in this uh, story. They just don't think God's involved in what's taking place. Now, let me ask you, do you recognize where doubt and unbelief are present in your relationship with God? Don't be too quick to say there isn't any because it can hide underneath doing all the right things. After all, the church here in Acts 12 is doing the right thing. They're praying, but they are not expecting God to rescue Peter. Maybe it's because he permitted James to die, because when they prayed the last time uh, for one of the apostles, the answer to their prayer was no. All of us probably say the Lord wills, or if it's God's will. And while theologically that's very, very correct, it could actually be an expression of, well, hedging our bets. 
not really praying with expectancy. Not, you know, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Almost a kind of fatalism. And I'm glad to read this story and smile because I see myself in its mirror. We too have to fight the good faith. God wants you and I to come to him boldly and expectantly with the seemingly hopeless and impossible situations. If you believed that God would answer one of your prayers and and meet some great need, what would it be? If God would actually act in something that perhaps you've given up all hope, really, that he'll do anything for you, what would it be? I almost put uh, index cards in every worship folder today. And because being able to say something on a card like that is really a very practical measure of whether you are praying about some great thing expectantly. And so I want to make this pledge to you. If you send me or write down for me some prayer and, uh, and you let me know, it's just between the two of us, I will pray confidentially for it. I will pray expectantly for it. And I hope you too will be praying expectantly for it. This passage tells us that our faith is not the full measure of what God will do. God is not limited by our lack of faith. And so the early church was learning by experience what Paul writes in Ephesians when he says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to his power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God's acts of salvation have two sides. They're like a coin. They have, there's always two sides. He rescues his people and he brings recompense on his enemies. He repays evil to his enemies. Now, God's mysterious. How these two sides of salvation are expressed, rescue and recompense or repayment, well, it's mysterious. We wonder why wasn't James rescued, and we don't know. Oh yes, part of the answer is is that Jesus calls us to suffer in this world, even some of us to die uh, for the sake of his name, as he himself suffers uh, with a uh, rebellious, hostile world who doesn't yet know him. But part of it still remains a mystery, and no one can answer that question. But Herod's story is another part. Herod's story shows us that God acts. He repays Herod for his evil. Herod, the persecutor, is eliminated. 
He's liquidated. And this account is no fairy tale. In its broad outlines, it's confirmed by the Jewish historian Josephus. Herod travels to Caesarea to meet a diplomatic delegation who wants to restore trade relations. They need food, and so they sue for peace. And Herod will speak to them from his throne. And Josephus elaborates uh, on uh, this scene with some extra details. Herod put on a garment made of holy of silver. And it came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was illuminated by the sun's reflection upon it. It shone in a surprising manner and was so resplendent that horror spread over those who looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out from one place and then another that he was a god. And they added, be merciful to us, although hitherto we've reverenced you only as a man, yet henceforth we own you as superior to a mortal. Upon this the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery, But as he looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope above his head. And he discerned that it was an omen for bad. A pain rose in his belly at those very moments. And uh, he began in a most violent matter, matter to be ill. Luke adds that it was the angel of the Lord who struck him down as he did not give glory to God. Now, this story is a cautionary one because in many ways, Herod Agrippa I lived a charmed life. He was raised among the Roman elite. Successive emperors Gaius and Claudius befriended him and honored him. He accrued the titles of king and consul, lands and riches, and at the height of his power and popularity, he was acclaimed as a god. He accepts the flattery and then is struck down almost immediately by a severe stomach illness and soon dies thereafter because he didn't give glory to God. He's punished for accepting divine acclamations. Now it's worth noting the parallels between this and what happens at the first Passover. Because in the first Passover, the story of God calling Israel out of Egypt, there is a king there, a Pharaoh, who imagines himself God and kills and imprisons God's people. And they are delivered from the clutches of this boastful ruler. And the angel of the Lord strikes Uh, in the 10th plague with deadly force. So even though not every arrogant ruler who thinks they have godlike powers uh, receives a swift judgment as Herod did, certainly not every arrogant oppressor of the church uh, has uh, met a swift end, it raises a question for us. Who's going to be the Lord of our lives? Will it be the God who reveals himself in Jesus or will it be the Herods of this world who imagine themselves to be God and live for the adulation of the crowd? You see, 
when we look to a political figure or political party as if they could do what only God could do, which is to solve the world's problems or our nation's problems or to usher in a golden age. Aren't we in danger of doing that very thing? This story points us to Jesus. Like Peter, we too need a deliverer. God delights to rescue us when all seems lost. God intervenes in a miraculous way to rescue Peter from a certain death. And we too very easily think that, well, God is uncaring. He's uninvolved and emotionally detached when we suffer. But the death of Jesus on the cross shows us that he knows our pain. Jesus is arrested during the Passover feast as Israel celebrates its deliverance from the oppression of the Egyptians. You remember uh, the story. Pharaoh, who is regarded by the Egyptians as God and worshipped as part of the center of the cult of the ruler, which was very common in the ancient world. Um, uh, Pharaoh uh, is sent a message from a man named Moses to let the people of God go. And Pharaoh refuses. And for uh, uh, weeks, months, God sends Moses back and says the same message Let my people go into the wilderness for three days uh, that they may worship me. And Pharaoh says, I'm not going to do this. And he might start to relent, but eventually he says no until God sends the 10th plague where the angel of death comes and kills all the firstborn children in Egypt. The angel of death will come to Israel too and take its firstborn unless they kill a lamb, the Passover lamb, and put the blood on the, on the doorframe of their homes. It's when Pharaoh's firstborn and the firstborn of Egypt have died that Pharaoh finally pushes them out. But it isn't long before he changes his mind and he sends uh, the best of his army to capture them. And God uh, swallows them up in the sea. The cross of Christ is the final and fullest Passover. Jesus is the Passover uh, lamb who sacrificed so that the angel of death will not come to us. Jesus is God's firstborn son, his only son, who becomes the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus could have called for his own rescue, but he chose not to be rescued so that you and I could be rescued. He chose to give his life as a ransom paid to buy our rescue and freedom. Jesus has come into our hopeless world of intractable problems. It's irresolvable conflicts. It's impossible situations to rescue us. And that rescue begins with our root problem. 
our rebellion against God, our estrangement from him, our wanting to be him. We want to be our own gods, to direct our own lives, to decide what's real and unreal, true and false, right and wrong. Have you come to the place where you recognize this root problem in your own life? That from this root problem arises all the other problems you have in your life. Whether it's the overreach in your life to find happiness, meaning, success in something outside of yourself, or the conflicts in your relationship, or your inability to be at peace with who you actually are. Your estrangement from God, your hostility to him, your passive aggressiveness, your indifference. The root problem manifests itself in all this variety of ways. He's calling to you this morning. Will you come to him? Will you turn to him? Will you place your trust in him as your substitute before God and receive him with glad faith and genuine repentance, asking him to be your Lord? There is one certain thing in our uncertain world. And Luke writes it in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of the gospel grows and spreads. It continues to reach more and more people. It increases in its geographic reach. More and more people respond to the good news with faith and repentance. Nothing stops this. Not the execution of James, the imprisonment of uh, Peter, the unbelief of the church, the arrogance of rulers like Herod who act as if they are God. Luke says this again and again in his account. If you were to go back to the front of Acts, you'd find more than 10 places where Luke says that many people respond to the gospel. There are four statements like this, that the gospel grows and multiplies. What Luke is saying is that no matter what opposition the church faces, no matter how things turn out, whether there's a persecution that forces Christians to flee or a persecutor like Saul becomes a Christian. The word of God multiplies, it spreads. This is the one and sure certain thing in our world that God is advancing the gospel. Dear church, Do you think this could happen here through you with the people that you work with, you live near, you go to school with? Do you think it could happen through us collectively here in Laurel, that the gospel would reach more people, that its extent in reaching into lives and to households, uh, into people's relational networks could take place? Will you ask for this? 
with expectant faith? Will you ask God to involve you, even if it means rearranging some things in your life? Are you willing? Will you ask? Do you have believing, expectant faith? Let's pray. Gracious Lord God, thank you uh, for uh, uh, these accounts that encourage us, uh, that, uh, that make us laugh, uh, that invite us uh, to believe for you more than we would believe on our own. Thank you that it's not our experience or our faith that limits what you'll do in the world. And Lord, uh, we desire to be a part of what you're doing. Lead us. Do more than we expect. Father, be pleased to draw to yourself people. And Lord, you know those things we've just given up on hoping for, trusting you, asking about. Stir up in us, Lord, the embers of faith in our hearts. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.